This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Mary Otto, her recent work, Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. Mary, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, David. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Otto's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly, on background, listeners of this podcast may recall I spoke with Burton Edelstein, dentist and former Medicaid and CHIP Payment and Access Commissioner, uh, almost exactly four years ago, and in January of last year, spoke with Marco Vucicic at the American Dental Association's Health Policy Institute about the poor state of oral health and oral health treatment and access. For example, nearly one in five children have untreated dental caries and nearly one in three adults aged 20 to 44. About 23 million Americans are completely indentulous or have no teeth, and about 12 million are dentulous in one arch. Only one-third of oral cavity cancers are found in their earliest stages. Today I'm privileged again to speak with Mary Otto, author of her recently published work, as I noted, Teeth, the Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America. Concerning my mention of Burton and Marco, both interestingly are noted in Mary's volume. So with that on background, Mary, I know you were motivated to write this book after learning about Diamante Driver. So I'll not give it away. What happened to uh, uh, this young Maryland resident in 2007, and how or why did it happen? Well, I was working at the Washington Post at the time. I was on the you know Maryland desk and covering social issues like housing and poverty issues, things like that, and. As you said, it was 2007. I found myself standing by the hospital bedside of this child, this 12-year-old boy named Diamante Driver, and it turned out he was dying of complications from untreated tooth decay. One of his teeth had become abscessed, and doctors told his mother that the bacteria from this infection had spread to his brain. And uh, six weeks in the hospital, two brain surgeries, didn't save him. He he died. And I ended up wondering, how did this happen? Why did it happen? These questions that you just asked. And I embarked on the journey that ended up being this book. I found out Diamante wasn't a, a rare, you know, case, unfortunately. I mean, thankfully, there aren't as many fatalities as they were back in the days before antibiotics. But Roughly a third of Americans face barriers getting routine dental care like, like Diamante did, and, and he was a Medicaid child. Fewer than half Medicaid children get routine dental care in America. So so it turned out to be a larger story than the death of this one boy. Okay, thank you. Uh, again, uh, Diamante was 12 years old, and he was hospitalized for six weeks at a cost of uh, $250,000, and despite all this, I died, as you said, from a abscess tooth, very tragically. 
I was surprised to learn in your book, you also know that the House member from Maryland, Donna Edwards, her brother died at 26 from the same thing. Yeah, I was so surprised to hear that. She came to an event, you know, uh, to address a group of, of minority dentists, you know, on, a, on an anniversary occasion for this National Dental Association, and she said that death had touched her own family. And I have heard of other cases uh, of, of death since, since Diamante died. A study found that 61,000 uh, people were hospitalized for dental uh, abscesses in uh, the decade that Diamante died. And, and there were um, 66 deaths among those, those uh, people who were hospitalized. Um, in a recent recession year, there were uh, over a hundred, three over three years during the recent recession, there were a hundred and one deaths from dental problems uh, in patients that showed up in emergency rooms. So, so yeah, these deaths are still occurring. Uh, and of course, all obviously uh, preventable. You noted too that at the time of his death, only twenty percent of uh, Maryland dentists were taking Medicaid patients. And as of 13, uh, only 35% of private practice dentists reported treating any patients on public assistance, and that's down from 44% in 1990. Let me go to your mention of the Surgeon General's report. Uh, although we've known this for more than well over a century, the 2000 Surgeon General's report titled Oral Health in America concluded oral diseases in this country constitute a quote-unquote silent epidemic from cavities, of course, uh, to gum disease, to oral cancer. Uh, more generally, the report argued oral health and overall health are inseparable. Of course, that seems pretty obvious. However, still today, we treat the two as if they are separate or unrelated. We still obviously have separate dental and medical schools. You, in your volume, go on at some length about the history of the professionalization of the field, the education, etc., beginning in about 1840. Um, so my question, after all this research and writing, uh, this is a problem, certainly suggested uh, by you in your volume. Will we ever see these two integrated? It seems like, yeah, there, with growing awareness, you know, on some level, the, the systems are moving a little closer together. There are like safety net clinics we have around the country, the federally qualified health centers. Um, health centers, they're they are making efforts to bring you know dental providers, not only dentists but hygienists, uh, in to treat the patients that they see. I mean, so many patients who come to these centers for their health care also need dental care, and they face you know major significant challenges finding it. So so there's more effort to sort of integrate care in that way. Physicians and nurses who are much more likely to see infants and small children um, for regular immunizations and well baby checkups. You know, even Medicaid children get those, uh, you know, pretty easily. They are now, in many cases, examining the children's mouths giving parents basic oral health 
education, you know, telling them about not putting a baby to bed with a bottle wow. containing anything but water, giving fluoride treatments for those first little teeth and, and encouraging the parents, parents to go and find, you know, a dental provider, maybe even helping them, you know, guiding them to someone who will see their children. You know, these aren't universally um, steps that are happening, but there's a growing recognition, you know, of the importance of oral health and the cost effectiveness of getting routine preventive care to uh, to people. I mean, more than a million Americans go to emergency rooms every year with non-traumatic dental problems, and these visits cost over a billion dollars a year, you know, to the health system. And, you know, the patients very seldom get the care they need for their dental problems in emergency rooms. Dentists don't work in, in these places. They they get sent away and told to go to their dentist, but then, you know, they confront those same obstacles that they brought them there in the first place. So, yeah, lawmakers, governors, healthcare officials are all saying, you know, these are costs we could avoid if we bridge this gap and made it easier for patients to navigate, you know, from the healthcare system to the dental system or brought these two systems closer together in, in ways that serve people. So nice to hear you're, you're optimistic. Well, you know... <laughs> The, the power of the purse is pretty. It speaks pretty loudly, you know. And if people see there's a, a an important incentive in getting care, you know, preventive, timely preventive care to people, I do believe that's a strong uh, that's a strong message. I mean, the fact that you and I are talking about it today, too, you know, in a podcast that's dedicated to, you know, healthcare, that's an important sign. You know, just breaking down that silo and getting the discussion of oral health into the discussion of overall health is something that, you know, Dr. Satcher talked a lot about in his Oral Health in America report. And, you know, it's something that the conversation is going on. And I'm glad you mentioned Satcher because obviously African-American, and that leads into my next question, which I've defined as smile designs and disparities. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, uh, your book is titled The Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health. So among uh, numerous other related stats, you note 31% of white toddlers and primary care kids have decay. However, 44 and 46% of black and Hispanics, respectively, have uh, the problem. And these minorities are twice as likely to go without treatment. Not by accident, you juxtapose significant oral health disparities with a discussion of the cosmetic dental industry. Uh, you discussed at some length the dental profession's increasing preoccupation with with clinicians doing, and I, I love this phrase, smile designs. Yeah. And teeth, as you know, it also in the volume are marketed as the ultimate jewelry. So it begs the question, uh, to what extent uh, is the profession interested, or can it, uh, to use lack of a better phrase, square the circle here between uh, pronounced disparities in oral health and the industry's move to, uh, speaking of financing, uh, increase their incomes relative to cosmetic dental uh, work. You say at least 80% of dentists do at least one cosmetic dental procedure. Yeah, there's, you know, these elective procedures certainly are claiming, you know, time and resources from the, you know, in the oral health world. And dentists are, you know, they're healthcare providers, but they also consider themselves small business people. You know, they, 
our, most of our oral health care in this country comes from the private practice system, you know, and dentists. Still a cottage industry, yes. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah I mean, the tr- you know, that's true. I, some dentists take offense at that terms, but that's certainly a, a term that is used. And so we're, these small businesses are designed to make profits for their owners. You know, these elective procedures are very profitable procedures. People use medical credit cards often to, you know, pay for this care. Um, meanwhile, yeah, there's... There are the federal government has estimated there are five five thousand dental provider shortage areas across the country, mm-hmm. home to like forty nine million Americans. Many of them are rural people or living in poor, you know, or less affluent neighborhoods and communities where dentists are less likely to open practices. So, you know, in addition to this kind of the attraction for, you know, providers uh, doing these, you know, profitable elective procedures. There's also the attraction of locating in neighborhoods or communities that look, you know, like better prospects for their for their practices in terms of making profits and, and being, you know, successful in the dental business. So, so yeah, they, these, they, these factors do um, complicate you know the picture in terms of getting more care to the people who who you know desperately need just routine services mm-hmm. thank you and that gets to my next question about how we can better provide routine services but I'll note in your book you have an account of a conference in which uh, a dentist uh, discusses uh, with the attendees how they can uh, further maximize their income or profit that that account alone, I think, was worth the uh, worth the read of the volume. So uh, I think it's in some ways perverse, but very interesting relative to the mindset. In that this is such a can be uh, such a profitable business. But let's get to routine treatment, and this is the epic battle question. Uh, you, in fact, that's the phrase you use in the book between dentists and mid-level dental providers, uh, otherwise termed dental therapists or dental extenders. And this is the fight over mid-levels or these ther- uh, hygienists uh, providing moreover preventative services absent a dentist supervision. This is the scope of practice question, obviously. Not surprisingly, this conflict is primarily about money. Uh, have dentists lost this fight against expanded scopes of practice for mid-levels or hygienists? You seem to suggest that by noting progress in, a, in Alaska and several other states that have proven to demonstrate improved access and preventative treatment for these uh, poor and more rural uh, residents. Yeah, yeah, this is an interesting issue, and it is kind of playing out, you know, in different states, because it does concern, you know, State Dental Practice Act, so it's kind of, it's not a national, um, dis- on some levels it is a national discussion, but it's got local angles in a number of states that are considering this model. And the dental therapist model has been used for, decades are in in dozens of countries around the world and it's a practitioner that's sometimes compared to a nurse practitioner mm-hmm. or a, a physician's assistant and I from what I you know have learned this debate was it kind of mirrors the de- debates that went on when those when those providers first emerged and you know the medical community talked about safety issues mm-hmm. and 
training issues and irreversible and, treatments. Yes, right, yes, irreversible treatments, and you'll hear all that in, in, in being discussed in state houses around the country, where where the dental therapists are being um, debated. It's got a long history in, in dentistry, and there was fear about hygienists in the early days, you know, branching out and starting their own practices and becoming independent competitors for dentists. And, you know, that hasn't happened for years, although hygienists, too, like dental therapists, are kind of see themselves as a, a, as an, a workforce extender. And in many states, a similar efforts are going on among hygienists to get a, the ability to go out and see patients without first being examined by a dentist, like visiting schools, nursing homes, other places where patients need care but can't get themselves into a dental office. So so dental therapists are, are kind of pushing the envelope and the scope of practice discussions, and these new dental therapists are now working all, you know, in Alaskan tribal areas. Uh, they've been there for about a decade now. They're they're taking care of about 45,000 patients in Alaskan tribal areas, and they are working in Minnesota, too. Uh, there are about 60-some uh, dental therapists working in Minnesota, which was the first state to approve dental therapists on a state level. Uh, Vermont and Maine both have passed laws. They don't have dental therapists working yet. But these are these are technically trained providers. They they take about half as long to train as a dentist. You know, they get about two or two two years of didactic training, and then they do you know many hours of clinical work before they're licensed. Um, they cost about half as much as a dentist to employ, and they do a narrower range of procedures. But they can do, as you said, some some procedures that are termed irreversible surgical procedures. They can drill and fill teeth. They can do some extractions. Um, so, you know, on some level you can see that, that, that these are these are services that up till now in America only dentists have been able to perform. So so there is a there's a there's an intense kind of controversy about about, you know, whether they should go forward in other states. Thank but, you. Thank you. Yeah, it seems like it's, it, it is happening, you know. It's, it's being discussed in many places now. And you do know in a couple instances of wins uh, where these providers were working and then challenged legally. There is an FCC case you talk about uh, that Dennis subjected. I will say back to the uh, Diamante driver year of 2007 when the Congress was trying to pass CHIP or reauthorize it. I was working on the Hill for the House Majority Leader, and there was a provision for a GAO study that was related to this subject. And the ADA, I can, I, I can remember the meeting. They were not happy whatsoever that just a study uh, would be funded under CHIP reauthorization relative to the utility of improving access through these mid-level uh, clinicians. Let's go to the, the, the big issue, of course, uh, and that's the coverage issue. You know, one-third of Americans face significant access and financial uh, barriers to obtaining uh, oral health care. Uh, Medicare, uh, with uh, theoretically the exception of Benny's in SNFs, or skilled nursing facilities, and Medicaid do not cover oral health for adults. Uh, Medicaid coverage for kids, you know, through Burton Edelstein's efforts in part in 2009 uh, was established. Historically, dentists have firmly opposed uh, and you note this through your 100 coverage of 150 years of history here, firmly opposed uh, nationalized oral health uh, coverage. 
Uh, and the ACA, as we well know, do not uh, include oral health coverage for adults in state marketplace plans. So the question, of course, is what's, again, based on all your research and writing, what are your thoughts relative to our seeing? And remember, Medicare, Medicaid had its 50th anniversary recently, right? Uh, when will we ever see social insurance coverage expanded to include uh, oral health for adults? Or we'll ask it uh, otherwise, will dentists ever drop their opposition to wider or more universal coverage? Well, some people hope that the emergence of this new workplace model, you know, the dental therapist, which is kind of designed to treat, you know, these populations that are left out will maybe help resolve that problem. There's also a growing push, maybe it's because baby boomers are getting toward the Medicare age to add, you know, dental benefits to Medicare. So, so you know, there, these, these grassroots efforts are kind of, seem to be taking on this issue in different interesting ways that, you know, it remains to be seen how far it'll go, but but again, you know, it's becoming more of the part of the conversation than it used to be. Nice to hear. As a closing out question, I have to ask, reviews of your work have been very positive, uh, uh, very favorable. There was one, I believe, in the New York Times Sunday Book Review recently. But I have to ask this question since uh, we are um, talking about the Dental Association. What's been the reception, or are you aware of uh, any reception by the American Dental Association relative to your research? You know, I haven't heard anything yet. Maybe it's just too soon, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Well, I hope uh, the work is widely discussed and read. Uh, I did mention uh, Burton served on uh, the Medicaid, uh, the MedPAC version for Medicaid, the Medicaid and Chip Payment and Access Commission. I'm sure they'll have interest in your research work and findings. So with that, uh, sadly, we're at our time boundary, Mary. I genuinely thank you, and, and my heartfelt congratulations on a great work. David, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you about it today. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.